Open your Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 will be in verses 62 to 66 this morning. Matthew 27, 62 to 66. Matthew 27, 62 to 66. I'll be reading from the ESV. There is a copy of the ESV in front of you in the pew back in front of you. So if you, for whatever reason, don't have your Bible with you, you can certainly use that. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that with you. You can just leave with it. We won't even search you on your way out. So you can have it. Matthew 27, 62 to 66. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has arisen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray over the word that we've just read. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we've read your word, you would help us to understand it, you would help to apply it to our lives, that your spirit would speak in place of me to the hearts of every single one of your people here, that you would lead us to truth, you would guide us to repentance where there needs to be conviction of sin, that you would help us in our encouragement over your word, and that you would make us bold witnesses to Christ's resurrection now. In Jesus' name, amen. As we near the end of Matthew, we should expect, like any book, that you're going to see themes throughout the book of Matthew that Matthew has opened up at the very beginning come back to fruition along the way. And so as we get close to the end, it's my job to help us remember all of these things that have come about along the way. All of these things that Matthew has told us, even as far back as the first chapters, to remind us of why the passage that's in front of us is really quite important, and what, how we need to read it, and how we need to understand it. So per our usual agreement, I'm going to take just a few minutes to remind you of all of the things that Matthew has opened up, in particular a couple of things that are really important for our passage this morning. One of the more interesting passages to me in the Gospel of Matthew occurs all the way back at the beginning, and it's a passage that we're reminded of almost every year we get to about this time around Christmas. It's the Magi coming to observe and worship the Christ child. You probably remember this scene all too well, and I won't go into too much of the story, but you'll remember about that that the Magi don't go straight to where Jesus is. They actually go to Jerusalem. Now, why is it that they go to Jerusalem? Well, they tell Herod they come to worship one who has been born king of the Jews. So, if you were going to worship the one who has become king of the Jews, where would you go? You would go to the one who currently serves as king of the Jews, Namely, you would go to Herod, who is in Jerusalem. And they tell him that. We've come to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, the irony that's there is that Herod has actually formally been given the title 
by Rome, king of the Jews. So you can imagine how much kings love competition. They don't. And so Herod is pretty mad about it. Now the reason that I find this interesting is because the level of detail that Matthew gives in his gospel as to the conversation that's going on behind the scenes between Herod and all of the chief priests that are there in Jerusalem. You have all of the ruling authorities gathered together. And in Jerusalem, at this moment, there's really two groups of ruling authorities. There's obviously the king, there's Herod, king of the Jews, and then there's also a group that we, re- we hear referred to for the first time, really, in the gospel as the chief priests. They're going to come back later on. But these chief priests and the Roman government represented by Herod. Now, this is the first time in the gospel that the Roman government and the chief priests gather together in a conspiracy against Jesus. Matthew even tells us that when the Magi came there, they tell him they were there to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I think Matthew is intending some irony there. I think he's intending for you to hear that ironically. Because in one sense, if you could imagine, Herod is crazy. Herod is really, towards the end of his life, he went off the deep end completely. And so you can imagine, if you serve under this king who is a tyrant, and he's controlling your land, and he is prone to fits of rage, then if something upsets him, then you're probably also going to be a little bit upset. But there's irony here too. Because This is the first group that has heard news of the Messiah being born. And they've come to the capital city of Jerusalem where God is supposed to be worshipped. They're the first group to hear, guess what? The Messiah that you've been waiting on, He's been born. And we've come here to worship Him. And they're troubled. You would think they would be overcome with joy. You would think this would be the moment where they look at Herod and be like, ha ha, your time is up, baby. It's over. They're not. They're troubled right along with him. The first sign in the book that this unholy alliance between the chief priests and the Roman government is going to spell doom for Jesus is right here. Very early on. But this passage is important for one big reason. Because it follows right on the heels of chapter 1. That's a Bible study tip. In case you're reading at home, chapter 2 follows chapter 1. So, just in case you were wondering. Matthew informed us in chapter 1, you'll remember that this Jesus is of the line of David. And... He has come to save His people from their sins. That's what we're told in chapter 1. He is a legitimate king because He's from the line of David. And He has come to save His people from their sins. And so the gospel of salvation from sin has come into the world. And how does the world respond to it? This interaction with the Magi and Herod follows right after that. He's come to save everybody from their sins. How do they react to it? 
by wanting to kill him. It's a natural reaction, isn't it? The best news in all the world has come to you, and what do you want to do? We want to kill it. Now, the real stink of it is that it didn't just come to the world. It came to Jerusalem, the pinnacle of the worship of God in the world. And they seem to be disturbed by the news that their salvation has come. But it helps us to understand right out of the gate what Matthew is expecting us to take from this gospel and what his point really is. That Jesus' incarnation is bad news for earthly governments. Jesus' incarnation is bad news for earthly governments, and they understand this. This is why they want to kill him. And I want, I want you to just pause for just a second and really think about this for just a second. If he really has come to bring a kingdom that is supposed to save you from your sins and give you the promise of eternal life with him. And the only way that you can do that is through your allegiance to Christ above all else. That's, that's the promise. If that really has happened, then your loyalty to Christ supersedes all earthly government. Yes? That's what's being told to you in the gospel. If you want to follow Christ, your loyalty to Christ supersedes all earthly authority. Well, you can see how this would present a problem for earthly governments. They like to keep their people. That is a premise of citizenship. They like to keep their people. They want to grow their people. They don't want to lose their people. And so when they hear of a king who loyalty to him supersedes their own authority, well, it presents a problem. Your nation, no matter which one you belong to, the U.S. or otherwise, wants your allegiance over everything else. It's a requirement for citizenship in this country that you not only swear allegiance to it, but you deny allegiance to any other country. So you denounce all other kingdoms and authorities and give your allegiance wholly to, in our case, the United States. So if another kingdom comes in promising salvation from sin and eternal life, Basically taking away the threat of death. And that king, as we'll see in a, few, in a few passages from now, says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, you can imagine that he becomes a geopolitical threat to all established earthly powers. Now, as we move further into the gospel, Jesus begins to demonstrate that he really is the Messiah. He starts doing miracles of healing the sick, he's, he's healing the blind, he's curing the lame, he's casting out demons, he's doing all kinds of these miraculous works. And all the while, he is preaching to people as he comes in, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You remember that phrase from earlier on in Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's telling everyone this. Well, in Matthew 9, he starts eating with tax collectors and sinners, because as you can imagine, if you're doing all this, demonstrating that you really are the Messiah, and you're saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then what are you going to gather around you? You're going to gather around you the sick, the lame, and people who need forgiveness from sin. Jesus even tells everybody that's listening, well, it's the sick who need the physician. So there in Matthew 9, he has gathered people around who know of their sin. Their sin is ever before them. Tax collectors and sinners... The culture does not let them forget 
just how wicked and depraved they are. So they're sitting around Jesus, and he's teaching, and the religious authorities are not happy at all that he's doing that. They're pretty ticked about it. Now, as offended as they are about his relationships with these so-called reprobates in society, it's not really until Jesus begins to attack them directly that they get really offended and try to do something about it. And it happens in Matthew chapter 12, where he and the disciples are walking through the grain field. So it's on the Sabbath day, and they're walking through the grain field, and they're hungry. So they reach out to one of the stalks at the edge of one of the field, and they take some heads of grain, and they rub it in their hands, and they begin to eat it. And when the tattletales, the Pharisees, are snooping around, watching them, they see what they're doing, and they realize, hey, you're harvesting on the Sabbath day. That is forbidden in the Scriptures to do work on the, on the Sabbath day. And so they confront Jesus over, do you realize what your disciples are doing? They're ignoring the Sabbath day altogether. And so Jesus ends that little interaction by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's why they can do that. So you can imagine how well that went over with them as they're kind of shocked that he would say, I have command over the Sabbath day. I command your regulations. Okay? But then in the very next verse, he walks into the synagogue where they are, and he takes a man with a withered hand, and he has him stand up. And he says, what about this guy? Can I heal him on the Sabbath day? Is that permitted by your laws, your regulations, by your Sabbath day rituals? Well, now the Pharisees are put between a rock and a hard place because if they say no, then you've got this guy with a withered hand who no mercy is shown to him. And everyone around, if this man could be healed, would want him healed. But to say yes, they kind of acknowledge that what they just did with Jesus around the grain fields is maybe a little bit too far. So what does Jesus do? Well, he heals the man. And you would think that when they see somebody healed, what would you do? We've got ailments all across the table in here. What would happen if Jesus walked in the door and he legitimately just started healing people? What would you do? Well, first of all, you would celebrate. Every single one of us would dance in the aisles, right? This whole Baptist church would change <laughs> all together. I mean, let's be honest, we'd be singing from the, from the tips of our toes to the top of our heads, right? Yeah, probably like we should do anyway. But that's another sermon. All right, uh, <laughs> where was I? Okay, so if he were to come in and start healing us, we would all be celebrating. The Lord has come. We would probably run out of these doors to the first house we found, and we would ask them, do you have an ailment? Because Jesus is here, and he will heal you. And they would come running too, just at the off chance that they could be healed. Of course we would. We would praise God, but not the Pharisees. Matthew 12, 14, right after that scene, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Naturally. Right? What happens to the Pharisees' authority when the Messiah comes? What happens if he walks into the synagogue and does what they say people shouldn't do on the Sabbath day? How are the people going to respond to him? Well, here, you say we can't pluck a head of grain if we're hungry. You say we can't 
heal on the Sabbath day, but here's a man who is actually healing people. Legitimate people who I know to be blind have been healed by him, and he says, we can do these things. Whose authority are they going to follow? What what person are they going to submit to? The authority of the Pharisees and the scribes? Or are they going to submit to Jesus, who has clearly demonstrated that he has power over physical maladies? Well, of course they're going to submit to Jesus. So what we're also learning in the Gospel of Matthew is that not only is Jesus' incarnation bad news for earthly governments, Jesus' ministry is bad news for the Jewish religious system as it stood in his day. It's bad news. Their authority is over. It's done. And further, Jesus is going to lead all the way up into Matthew 24 where he condemns the temple and he says it's going to come down brick by brick. So Jesus' incarnation, bad news for the Romans. It's bad news. His ministry is bad news for the Jews. So Matthew shows us all of that throughout this gospel until we get to this final little picture here where Jesus has been killed and he's been buried and now what? Now what do we do? And Matthew is going to show us in this little scene that the resurrection of Jesus is the worst possible news for the kingdom of the world. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the worst possible news for the kingdom of the world. You know what I mean by the kingdom of the world? It's literally everything that's going to die and perish. Okay? Literally everything. It is the worst news for people that are bound for death. It's absolutely the worst. Look at what's happening in this passage that's in front of us. Matthew tells us what the time frame is. What does he say there? He says, it's the day after the day of preparation. Shorthand would be saying it was the Sabbath day. The day after the day of preparation for the Sabbath is otherwise known as the Sabbath day. The day of preparation would have been Friday. You'd get all your affairs in order so you don't have to work on the Sabbath. And then you would eat and do all the fe- participate in all the Sabbath festivities on the Sabbath day. So it's Saturday in our modern calendar. That's how we would think of it. And all of the Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, they also affirm the same thing. So it's the Sabbath day. The chief priests and the Pharisees are gathered around Pontius Pilate, who is a Gentile on the Sabbath day, which is a big no-no. But nonetheless, they're gathered around Pontius Pilate, and they're plotting how they might preempt the disciples' plot to steal the body of Jesus. How could we possibly navigate this situation where we can preempt this, we can prevent this from happening? Plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day, if you're keeping score at home, plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day, not in accordance with the Sabbath. Plotting how you might undermine the best news God has ever given to humanity is perfectly fine, apparently. Healing a man with a withered hand? Nope. Compromises the law. Cavorting with Gentiles on the Sabbath day? That's God's work, apparently. All right, so the chief priests are gathered around Pontius Pilate, and the Pharisees are there with them, and they're worried. And so they petition Pilate for some military muscle to help them. And look at what they say in verse 63. Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud, 
will be worse than the first. They're clearly concerned that the disciples are going to attempt to do something, namely steal his body from the grave and then obviously claim to everyone else that Jesus was resurrected. And so they refer to him here as an imposter, which if you're following along with the story so far, what are they accusing him of being an imposter of? Of being an imposter of the Messiah. You're not really the Messiah. You're not really the king. We only have one king. They declare openly in John 19, 15, we have no king but Caesar. They deny the Messiah. So they're buttering Pilate up here, and you can hear it in their language. They're coming to him. He's a fraud. He's, he's, a, he's a reprobate. He's an imposter. Now the issue, they say, is that the disciples are going to come along, and they might take his body, and we might not be able to point to bones in a grave. And so, if you're thinking about this logically, the worst news in the world is that they won't be able to point to bones in a grave. Do you realize that's what they're saying? They're telling Herod that, that if we can't prove that he hasn't resurrected, then that's going to be a big problem for us. In fact, the lack of a body in a grave is the biggest problem for every atheist in the world today. The fact that there is no body in Jesus' grave, that there is a tomb that was made 2,000 years ago that is deprived of its body, that is a problem for every single atheist out there. It's a problem of his incarnation. It's a problem of his ministry. There are occasions where Matthew does this, and I think we would do well to pay attention to what's going on here in the text itself. We all know that Jesus is about to rise from the dead. Matthew has already told us that back in verse 53. But now he's telling us, and he's telling you, the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And he's telling it to you in the mouth of his enemies, of the chief priests and the Pharisees. What is the significance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead? It will be a terrible thing for the chief priests and the Pharisees who have no body to point to. A missing body in the grave is a problem for all Jewish authorities. So understand that Matthew is also here preempting their argument that they're going to make in a couple passages. In a couple passages, they're going to try to tell everyone that Jesus' resurrection was a lie, that really his disciples came along, stole the body, and took it to a different place. Now, you need to realize that there are only two real options here. It is a, a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a man that walked around the earth. It is also a historical fact that he was crucified on a cross. There's no debate to that, even by the most ardent atheists. That there was a man named Jesus, he was from Nazareth, he went to Jerusalem, he had many followers, and he was crucified. We have that from Christian sources, we have that from non-Christian sources. The question is, what happened to his body? That is the question. There are only two options. Either the disciples came and stole his body, because remember, there is a tomb in Jerusalem that has no bones in it. So either his disciples came and they stole the body and took it away, or he rose from the dead. Those are the only two options. Now, the first claim that they stole his body is, should be easily refutable. If somebody said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, we have, proof of, we have proof of the resurrection, he appeared to me, how would you do it? How would you say, no, 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 let me set the record straight. How would you do it? You would order the tomb to be unsealed. You'd cut it open, 
roll back the stone, you would see a rotting corpse there in the grave, and you would say, see, there is Jesus. He is still laying there in the tomb. It's not like some followers of Jesus, 500 years after his resurrection, read these accounts and decided, hey, we're going to follow Jesus because we think he was resurrected. Where's his tomb? I don't know. Like a bunch of Elvis fans. Nobody did that. From day one, the Christian movement spread faster and farther than any faith in history, and it spread to multiple cultures, which is comparatively rare. If you look at a global map of world religions, you're going to see most major world, most world religions are confined inside cultures. Not Christianity, it spread across the entire globe into multiple cultures. Culture, cultural places. It also spread to multiple continents, which is even rarer. It just didn't happen back then, and yet it did. It spread. And if it's really easily falsifiable, all they have to do is produce a body. That's all they have to do, and they should spend their time and energy looking for it, and the Jews had every reason to do that. And yet, in the day that Jesus was proclaimed as being resurrected from the dead, they could not produce one single bone. And so they realize, even now, before he's resurrected, hey look, Pilate, a missing body is going to be a really big problem for us. Because if we don't have bones to point to, they can claim anything they want to. And if, if we can't falsify their claim, what do they say? Well, the last is going to be worse than the first. We think his ministry and his incarnation was bad now. We think that it was bad news for us now. Just wait until they claim he was resurrected. Oh, then it's going to be treacherous for us if we can't produce a body. So in an effort to preempt this, they hint to Pilate that they need some military muscle. You notice what they, what they say to him, right? There in verse 63, uh, that you remember they said he was going to rise through it. And then verse 64, they say, Therefore order. Pilate has control over the Roman military. Therefore Pilate ordered the Roman military to come and guard the tomb for three days. But listen to what Pilate says to them. He denies their claim. Look at verse 65. You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing it sealing the stone, and setting a guard. Now, I'm going to apologize to all my Sunday school teachers through the years. I'm going to respectfully disagree with them. They did everything they could, and I don't even know their names, but they were wonderful people who taught me the gospel at a very early age in Sunday school. But I'm going to respectfully disagree with them in their flannel graphs. You remember the flannel graphs? You remember these? Little pictures, you put them up on the flannel board. I remember seeing a troop of Roman soldiers gathered around the tomb. And then I remember seeing them laid down on their side. That you brought up the sleepy Roman soldier and you put him down next to the tomb. That's not what Pilate actually tells them. He tells them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Now some translations of the NIV, like the NIV and, and several others, say take a guard of soldiers, which is... Not the most natural translation here. What Pilate actually tells them is you have your own soldiers that you can go guard the tomb with. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't undermine the gospel. It doesn't undermine the resurrection of Jesus at all. However, 
this being a guard of Roman soldiers makes little sense of what actually takes place in Matthew's account. This is not a guard of Roman soldiers that they get. The chief priests are going to later pay off these guards for one, and they're going to tell them, look, if anything happens, you just, you just let us take care of it. We'll intervene for you. We'll stand in between you and the governor. Should there be an uprising in this land... And the governor looked to you, who are responsible to guard the tomb and creating this uprising. We're going to stand in the gap for you, and we're going to distract the, emperor, uh, the, the governor, and we'll, we'll satisfy his curiosity. Now, understand that Roman soldiers, there's absolutely no way a chief priest in Israel would ever be able to stand in between a governor and the Roman soldiers. Period. Just wouldn't happen. There's also no way the Roman soldiers would ever report to Jewish leaders they were underneath Roman soldiers, not above them. They would never report to Jewish leaders in the case of such a blunder. And so these are temple guards that they have. That's who they have. They have a guard of temple soldiers. You have a guard. And remember, Pilate has washed his hands of the death of Jesus. He wants nothing more to do with Jesus. And he goes along with, with what they're saying. He says, look, I... I I have nothing to do with it. You have a guard. You go take care of it. Make it as secure as you possibly can. Now, alternatively, the Jews, remember, have cried out, His blood be on us and on our children. They want condemnation for the death of Christ. If there's any, uh, you know, things to pay for the death of Christ, we'll pay it. Our blood in our children. Now, the irony here is that the group of guards that they get are also Jews. They pay them off, and they tell, him, they tell them to propagate a lie later on. And so the message from Matthew is very clear. Don't blame the Roman soldiers for this. Don't blame the Gentiles. Our brothers are the ones propagating this lie. In other words, the lie that we're about to hear in a couple of weeks is an inside job. And why? Because if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, everything changes. If Jesus is really resurrected from the dead, think about that for a second. Everything changes. What kind of world do you live in? Well, you're a world, you live in a world where there's gravity and there's stars and there's moons and they all obey certain laws of physics and everything operates day in and day out as it normally should. We don't live in a magical universe like you would see described in like the Chronicles of Narnia or perhaps the Lord of the Rings or some other really nerdy book. Unless Jesus rose from the dead. In which case, a man being condemned to die, perishing and being buried in a grave and then getting up and walking out three days later is big news, and it overturns everything that you think you know about the world around you. You now live in a, in a world where dead men rise from the grave. Do you understand how that changes everything about the world around you? First of all, Jesus' resurrection vindicates His entire ministry. Everything that He said and did, everything that He said about Himself, everything from His incarnation to His death on the cross, because of the resurrection, everything about Jesus is vindicated. And that means because of the resurrection, all who are followers of Christ have truly been redeemed. There's actually hope for you because of the resurrection. And it's only because of the resurrection 
that there's hope for you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And then just a few verses later in verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you, you are still in your sins. Then those who are, have fallen asleep, that it, those who have perished already, in Christ have perished. They're gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because you have to understand, Paul is telling us that the resurrection of Christ is the very beginning of the Christian apologetic. The resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the Christian apologetic. It is the only reason why we have hope is that there is a resurrection of the dead, that Christ was raised. If you're going to stand before the unbelieving world, then the beginning of your argument, if asked to give an account, should be that Jesus' tomb has no body in it. If I were asked to give an account, I wouldn't first go to creation. I wouldn't first go to the validity of Scripture. I wouldn't first go to the prophets. All of those things are tremendously important. If I were asked to validate the Christian narrative, I would begin with the resurrection from the dead. Here is Jesus, resurrected. Refute it. You, doubter, you, skeptic, the burden of proof is on you. Throughout history, people have claimed that He rose from the dead. His own disciples faced certain death for proclaiming His resurrection from the dead. You, skeptic, overturn the evidence. But you understand, this is a quick lesson in how to kill the gospel. You get that? That's what Matthew's putting in front of you right now. It's a quick lesson in how to kill the gospel. If the crucified Jesus is still dead, then none of this matters. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The entire argument of Christianity is worthless because the premise of our argument is that we're saying we live in this world, but we live for the next world. We live in this world, but we live for the next world. That is the fundamental premise of our argument. Unless Jesus didn't raise from the dead, in which case, none of it matters. But you understand also that Jesus doesn't actually have to be in the grave for the gospel to die in a culture? You know that? Jesus doesn't have to still be in the grave for the gospel to die in a culture. All that has to happen is you have to be silent about it. You have to be quiet. See, this is what they try in the book of Acts, right? Jesus' body is gone. They spread the rumor that his disciples stole him away. And then in the book of Acts, they try to beat the disciples to try to keep them quiet. It's when Peter says, we cannot, you're going to have to decide whether we listen to you or listen to God, but we can't keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. We've seen the resurrected Christ. We can't keep quiet about it. The resurrection of Jesus is the worst news for the kingdom of the world. Why? Because the only threat that the world has over you is that death still holds sway over you. Hey, you're still going to die. You only live once. You better live the best you can. 
You better suck every drop of juice out of the world while you've still got it because your days are numbered and once you go into that grave, you are worm food. And so, if you've got an emperor or a king or authority that's holding over you your very life, well, they hold all the cards. But what happens if you get a group of people who figure out, wait a second, there's a resurrection from the dead. There's a world to come. There's eternal life on the other side. There's following Christ, submission to Him. What happens if you get a group of people that follow along with Christ wholesale? Now they have no longer any threat. They have nothing to hold over you. The point is that we're, there was a place and time 2,000 years ago when the satanic powers of this world considered what a bodiless tomb actually meant for them. That's what they're doing right here. They're considering what a bodiless tomb actually means for them, and they've realized that would be our worst nightmare. And so Jesus' ministry of healing the blind and walking on water is meaningful because in Jesus' tomb, there is no body. And they realize that is the worst case scenario for them. We live now 2,000 years on the other side of the story. We know how it ends. The tomb of Jesus is bodiless. He got up. He rose from the dead. And His resurrection comes with an implicit promise to you that the ones whose sins are forgiven will likewise rise from the dead. Do you understand, Christian? That is what we're living for. We're living for a bodily resurrection from the dead when Jesus returns and His resurrection comes with an implicit promise to you that those whose sins are forgiven will likewise rise from the dead. So it's good news to the one who is currently in his sins, isn't it? For you currently, John 3.36 tells us, the wrath of God remains on you. But Jesus' death and His resurrection actually gives to you hope. There is an offer for you, unbeliever, of hope. That when you go into the grave, you don't have to be worm food. You don't have to be resurrected to death and go to hell forever. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. His death is sufficient for you. You need only trust in His sacrifice on your behalf. You need only trust in His resurrection. That it is enough for you. You need only follow Him as His disciple. And you will have life after the grave. That is the promise of the Gospel. That is the good news. That, Christian, is what you have. Do you understand, believers, that that is the news that you have? That is the good news that you have to tell your neighbor or your kid or your friend or your family member. That is the news. That Jesus rose from the dead. Are you hurting? Jesus rose from the dead. Does the world have a grip on you so tightly you feel like you can't breathe? Jesus rose from the dead. This is the news that you have. It's the best news in all the world. That's what we have to offer a world that's lost in darkness. But can I tell you something? So often, what passes as a 
gospel message from us is a therapy gospel. You know what the therapy gospel is? The, the therapy gospel is, he makes me feel better. Well, you should really try Christianity because it makes me feel better. It worked for me. You heard that? Hey, it worked for me. Now, is it true that God gives us comfort in our time of need? Absolutely. That's not the center of the gospel. What you have to give people is I know a dead man that rose from the grave. You know that thing that's sitting in front of all of us? That casket that we know is coming for us? I know a man who defeated it. Do you know that there's a promise to you? That he will defeat it for you? That that darkness that you're walking through doesn't have to last forever? I don't have to give my family members and my friends a therapy gospel. I can give them the actual good news. That Christ overturned the grave. That he holds the keys to death and Hades. That it no longer holds sway over you. Or it doesn't have to. We can give them the real gospel. Why do we sit on that? Why do we not say that to people? Why are we afraid and intimidated to just put it to them bluntly? Yes, the casket waits for me. Yes, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay there. Why don't we present it with that much confidence? Understand that when you're bedridden in a hospital or a nursing home, you have very few visitors. You have seemingly, you would think, on the surface, nothing really to contribute to society as a whole. When that day comes... For virtually all of us, a therapy gospel is probably not going to be your best comfort. What is? The fact that when the casket comes for me, I'm not going to stay there. The fact that one day Jesus will return and he's going to call my dead body up from the grave just as his was resurrected. The good news of the gospel is what actually brings comfort. Let's give that to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my hope and prayer for us is that we would grow in boldness as we understand what the good news of the resurrection actually means for us what it means for the world. We get so intimidated. I confess I'm there with everyone else. We get intimidated and we don't say the good news of the gospel to people. We don't tell them what it is. Maybe it's because of fear of reprisal or maybe it's because they won't 
like us or it'll destroy a friendship or who knows what it is. But for one reason or another, we get into this pattern, this habit, this fear, fearful position. Father, only your spirit can change that in us. Only you can make us bold to just tell people the good news about Jesus. I pray you would. In Jesus' name, amen.